Every story needs a hero Like every bullet needs a gun Well I've been looking for a battle cry Now will I stand or will I run If I fall Hello and welcome to Filmwalk, this is Glenn, I'm here with Daniel Hello and tonight we're going to be reviewing a trio of new streaming selections uh, this week, although I believe one of them is only in theaters, uh, and that film is Blacklight. Uh, we are also checking out Kimmy on HBO Max, and uh, we are concluding with a romantic comedy new on streaming on Prime Video, so we will uh, get right into it. One day you wake up and realize you're not sure who the good guys are anymore. You're a federal agent involved in a secret FBI program. Off the books. Kimmy? I'm here. Call Dr. Burns. I got her. What kind of bad stuff do you do? Breaking and entering. I'm here. Physical coercion. How dare you? Hey, hotness. Wow. You name it, I've probably done it. Kimmy? I'm here. Reopen last stream on desktop. Not on my menu. Gabe, I've been thinking. I'm a voice stream interpreter. I may have heard a crime on one of the streams. Maybe it's time I hang it up. No. Travis. The devices pick up lots of things. I know I wasn't a great father, but I'd like to be the best grandfather I can be. Just mark this degraded audio and delete it. I am not capable and you know it. I've been writing about the story for over a year. The United States government is killing innocent civilians. Closure files come to my office. We'll listen to the recordings together. Miss Childs, I have to know what we're dealing with. Under whose orders? The director of the FBI. Can we please call the FBI? You need to come clean, Gabe. You're confused about our relationship. I understand that you have taken some mental health leave in the past. Well, why is that in my file? You are my weapon. You work for me. I will. Those were from the trailers of Blacklight, the new film co-written and directed by Mark Williams, starring Liam Neeson as an FBI operative named Travis Block, who gets involved in a government conspiracy, as well as the trailer for Kimmy, the new film directed by Steven Soderbergh and written uh, by David Kep. Uh, starring Zoe Kravitz as a tech analyst working for an Amazon analog company uh, in the film. And her gig is uh, that she intercepts audio recordings from an Alexa-like device known as Kimmy. Uh, it, uh, basically, whenever somebody has a, a moment of confusion with one of those things, it doesn't quite understand them correctly, it goes to a human analyst to try and parse out what it was that they meant. And this is based on real life. Every tech company that is doing voice recognition has humans in the loop. Some of them are more forthcoming about that than others. This movie also touches on uh, at least one real-life case where a uh, in, in Arkansas, an Alexa device recorded what was apparently a, an actual murder and the recordings of that uh, were brought into the trial, though I never heard of how that case uh, was disposed. So, yeah, some very much ripped-from-the-headlines uh, type of stuff here. Blacklight, on the other hand, is a, very, a pretty generic government conspiracy-type film. I think it's fair to categorize it as basically just sort of generic Jason Bourne. Uh, we have a character named Dusty Crane, played by Taylor John Smith, who is 
part of a secret government program called Project Unity, and it gets up to dirty deeds on behalf of the FBI director, uh, Gabriel Robinson, played by Aidan Quinn, who is old friends with his prime fixer, Travis Block, played by Liam Neeson. When I describe these two films to you, Daniel, even if you knew nothing else about them, Kimmy, you at least could probably not guess at every single thing that happens in the film, whereas with Blacklight, I feel like you pretty much know what you're getting going into it. Is that fair to say? I think that's fair. Can, can I just be honest with you? I think we, we've we known each other long enough that we can be honest with each other. Blacklight was honest to God one of the worst movies I've ever seen. From the fight choreography to the chase scenes to the acting, it's atrocious. My one question I had, throughout the whole film was what are we doing here what are we honestly doing with this film like who thought this was a good idea i guess that's two questions but why why are we doing all these things liam neeson he's not that guy anymore it was terrible it was absolutely terrible now kimmy on the other hand i actually quite liked let's step back to blacklight here for a second because i feel like we had pretty similar opinions about this fil- these films which which was my guess when i decided to combine these into a single segment here Blacklight is, I would agree, one of the worst thrillers I have ever seen. And it was so bad that it in fact made me question the ability of Liam Neeson to be a leading man. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I, I just I just did a 10 years ago retrospective on uh, the movie The Grey, a film that we did not like all that much the first time and actually which improved with age for me. I actually really? liked that movie better this time around. And I wrote many, many, uh, I wrote several thousand words justifying that, that belief. I, I think I only raised it by one and a half points from our original review. Like I gave it like a six out of 10 in the end. So like, it's not a great movie, but it's a movie that at least was interesting to me. It's an interesting ensemble. They're in a situation that was rendered you know realistically well enough Liam Neeson I don't know what he's doing in this movie he's he's playing a character that feels like he's out of a 90s thriller starring either Clint Eastwood playing sort of an over-the-hill version of one of his previous characters mm-hmm. like uh, sort of a like a like a blood work or a uh, in the line of fire something where he's not supposed to be in his prime in the movie and that's part of the point. But he also feels like he is playing Arnold Schwarzenegger in the movie Eraser, where he is the super cop who works for the FBI and does illicit shit for them, but he's the one who means well, and he's the one who does the right thing. And Liam Neeson, I'm sorry to say, does not have the charisma of either of those actors that I just mentioned. Liam Neeson only has one mood, and that is dire. And I think that there was one moment in the early 2000s where that worked really, really well. And it wasn't because Taken was an especially good action movie. I'm sorry, I will stand on this hill here. Taken was not an especially good action movie. But it did have a really good speech in it. And sometimes one really good speech is all you need to carry a movie, or in his case, an entire trilogy of movies that just got worse and worse as they went along. Or in this case, his career. Like All I I remember about him is that line. Liam Neeson works well in an ensemble. I am not sure that he works as a leading man, and this character just does not work. He he's not he is not that guy anymore. I am with you on that. And in the few moments where we see him engaging in fistfights in this film, even though they have him gracefully losing to younger people, the fistfights just did not feel real. They felt like they were stunt work, carefully choreographed to make sure we don't injure our aging. Slow motion. It was slow motion choreography. Also, Daniel, the very first line of the of notes that I typed for this film is that the music in this movie is goddamn ridiculous, and that is not an opinion that I changed as the film went on. There are two people I want to call out here. Mark Esham, who did the score for this film, which is 
it feels like somebody who watched a bunch of 24 episodes and did his best impression of them. Uh, that's the score of this movie. And then we have John Coggins, who uh, I referred to as Dollar Store Imagine Dragons uh, in the uh, in the end credits, sings not one but two original songs, Stronger Than Before and Nothing's Gonna Break Me. Daniel, can I read you a selection of the lyrics from one of those songs? Please do. Every story needs a hero, like every bullet needs a gun. <laughs> well, I've been looking for a battle cry. Now will I stand or will I run? Somebody wrote that and was proud of themselves. Yeah. Uh, he's got a Spotify channel if anyone wants to check him out. But this film, you know, it's about an hour and 45 minutes long, and I would say probably 15 minutes of that was people uh, was people explaining their ideologies or justifying themselves in some way. And those scenes really need to come about more organically than this. Aiden Quinn is flat-out terrible in this film. <laughs> he, is, he is cacklingly evil as the FBI director, but he's either bad-mouthing politically correct soapbox-spouting millennials in very ambiguous terms, or he is uh, just referring to J. Edgar Hoover like he's got a photo of him on his wall, and that's that's sort of his ideal, is to become the shadow government of the United States. And it's never specific. It's never made clear. It's just the FBI's doing shady shit to push back on on, on socialism or on on any sort of overtly leftist social movement. It's it's all nice and vague. You know, I felt bad for uh, Emmy Raver Lapman, who plays Mira Jones. Uh, she's in. Yeah, uh, she's actually rather good. She, in this. She's good in this. And she's also she's great in the Umbrella Academy. And so when I saw her, I was excited. I was like, oh, I, I really like I like this actor. And she is the best part of this terrible film. <laughs> yeah, Tim Draxel is the Aussie guy who plays her editor. There are a lot of Aussie actors in this film because it was shot in Australia. <laughs> but um, and, and, you know, he was fine. Uh, Claire Vanderboom plays uh, Amanda Block, who is his daughter. Uh, and he's got his daughter and his granddaughter, and that's basically the only motivation we get for Travis Block is that he cares about his family. You can kind of guess where that goes. I mean, Daniel, I also found myself comparing this to The Equalizer. And yes, I did too. Those, those films work as well as they do because Denzel Washington has unmatched and easy charisma. Any minute that Denzel Washington is on screen is a minute that I am captivated. Denzel and is that, so believable as a badass. I, I just can't say that about Liam Neeson. No, it's just and, not and the case. I understand that, that was part of the character, right? He's grandpa. He's I, He only takes one speech to turn his entire ideology 180. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like, fine. Uh, the ending, I don't know if we want to get into spoilers. I I had I just threw up my hands at the ending, but we can get into that later. To be honest, most of the plot of this movie has been lost in the wind over the course of this week. I watched this movie three days ago, and I can barely remember it. They kill off an obvious AOC comparison. And yeah, it's just kind of shrugged as a congresswoman or, or some sort of social activist, and it's pretty clear that she's AOC light uh, at, at the start here. But... The way that these guys operate does not make conceptual sense to me. And if we were doing just the big, dumb conspiracy thriller version of this, you cannot just leave your brain at the door here. If this movie was trying to be Hitchcock, which Kimmy very much was trying to be Hitchcock and was wildly more successful about it, but Kimmy kept the focus of its conspiracy nice and small. It acknowledged the existence of journalism, of outside authorities, of the ability for this entire plan to fall apart if too many people know about it. And Blacklight does not exist in that world. Everyone is just evil and all-powerful, and only Liam Neeson can punch them hard enough to make it all go away. And as soon as he does, it will all go away, because it's that kind... It, it, it's 
been thought through with that little detail. And I don't mind that if we're talking about a movie where the action is so good that the world building being stupid doesn't matter to me. But this is not that movie. There is a there are a couple of half decent car chases in this movie, a couple of good explosions. And that is about it. I'm going to stop you there. You cannot do car chases anymore. The Fast and Furious <laughs> franchise has ruined that. Like you can't, you can't top that. So don't even try, because what we saw in this film was just—it was boring. It was conceptually boring. You can't. Whenever talk. I had a moment where I was uh, willing to praise the staging of the action, I was just—it it was all individual moments. It was, oh, okay, that was kind of a cool stunt you did there. It was not the entire thing hangs together because the action is motivated by characters and and story. And again, I have to toot Kimmy's horn a little bit here. The little bits of action that were in that film, because that is not a that is not a terribly elaborate film, nor did it look like a terribly expensive film to make, but it is a much more effective thriller, and it uses just these tiny little moments to make it all work. It doesn't need to go for the spectacle, and if you're just going to bring in spectacle for no reason, it just reinforces the question that I had from the beginning of this film, which was the same one that you had, Daniel. Why are we here? Why are we watching this? Why are you wasting my fucking time? Wow, we actually agree. I'm, I'm exhilarated right now. I mean, I agree with you on Kimmy. I came away with that thinking, one, Zoe Kravitz is fantastic. I think she really balanced the whole unlikable, but also somebody you can kind of identify with character really well because she's kind of rude to a lot of people in the film. And she's dealing with, you know, a lot of pretty serious issues. She's a flawed, you know, protagonist, but I was rooting for her. I thought she was interesting. I wanted to see... What happened to her? And that movie, Kimmy is so tightly cut, right? It, 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 the pacing's great because we ramp up, but the way we ramp up just feels organic. Unlike in Blacklight, where I was just befuddled from the get-go as to what the hell we were doing here and what the movie was trying to even say, if anything, uh, because of just how the pacing was so just bizarre, so, Kimmy, uh, just to let you know what a small crew this was. So Soderbergh has really sort of joined the digital revolution here, shooting a lot of films on iPhones and limited crew, natural light a lot of the time. Um, he is actually uh, cre- so the credited cinematographer on this film is Peter Andrews who has been Steven Soderbergh's credited cinematographer since the movie Traffic in 2000. Uh, Peter Andrews is Steven Soderbergh. Uh, the film was edited by Marianne Bernard. You know what I'm going to tell you, Daniel? Marianne Bernard is also Steven Soderbergh. Oh, hey! Uh, this guy is very much a one-man shop when it comes to his movies. Now, of course, he brought in Cliff Martinez, who is, in fact, a uh, a composer I quite like, in fact. And he does a marvelous job with sort of the... It's very much trying to be sort of the plucky strings of a Hitchcock score, but it feels like it's also trying to be thoroughly modern. I like the score of this movie quite a bit, and the score is doing a a lot of the thriller work as scores often do so as somebody that owns some of those devices uh some of the amazon devices one that's in my room right now which i will not say its name because i don't want to deal with it talking to me i liked how they used it i liked how it was employed i forgot about the arkansas case uh, thanks for reminding me about that yeah it was well done it was well conceived i thought all the seattle stuff was like, aside from her address being a made-up street, <laughs> I was totally into the, all the Seattle stuff. When they went to International District Station, I was like, I know that place. I've been there many times. Yeah, I tweeted on the day that it was nice to see uh, that they managed to shoot a sound transit station where the escalator was not broken on that day. It was just <laughs> ready to be broken at a moment's notice. It had the do not enter thing just stashed off to the side. That station's nice because it's, you know, partially outdoors. So it's good for good for shooting. 
Well, you know what else there was in the in the movie and its depiction of Seattle? There were protests in front of City Hall and in front of the county jail. There were protests or there there were lots of homeless people camping in the streets. Like this movie felt like it took place in the Seattle that I know from the last few years. Yeah. This felt like a thoroughly and instantaneously modern film with modern subject matter and Zoe Kravitz plays a multi-layered character here. This is a character who has been on this kick for a while. She's clearly very well off. She's living in this massive apartment in uh, how, how, how much somewhere. How much would this place cost in Seattle? Because I was trying to calculate it in, in the moment, and I was like, "That is at least she has a like an entire floor, off. so it'd, it'd be like millions of dollars." Yeah, and then she's got a building across the street of uh, of apartments and stuff. So there's a little bit of a rear window thing going on here, but on a very basic level, just just sort of two buildings parallel from each other. Her neighbors include a man named kevin who is played by devin rattray do you know who devin rattray is i do not he is buzz uh kevin McAllister's older brother in the original home alone oh good for him yeah and he plays a very interesting kind of uh slightly creepy character i actually really liked this character i thought they did something pretty interesting with him but uh we've also got byron bowers who primarily i know is a comedian uh plays her neighbor terry who is a lawyer lives across the street and is also I don't want to say her boyfriend, but is clearly a regular booty call for her. Um, I think that's probably fair to say. Yeah, they're hooking up. Yeah, they're hooking up because they connected in lockdown, and they, you know, they started texting each other while being able to see each other. So there's sort of a there's sort of a creepy surveillance element to their courtship that I thought really worked well with the film thematically. That worked really nicely, but I, you know, I also I like the idea of when when you think back to that Arkansas case of evidence from an Alexa unit being used in a murder trial. You know, it's not so off the wall because we've all heard of cases of public surveillance cameras being used as evidence in criminal cases. The only difference is we've invited surveillance into our homes with these ring cameras and with these Alexa devices. Hey, I own and both I say of we, those. But I don't have these things in my house. You have them in your house. <laughs> uh, you actually do. You just don't know where I put it. Indeed. Um, but the the idea of a thriller in this world of universal surveillance and the idea that even in this world where ostensibly you're being watched at all times, there can still be these evil people doing evil deeds because they will just do bad things in plain sight and they will flood the zone with so much bullshit that they will never face any consequences for it feels very real and it feels very on point the idea of a hit squad trying to take somebody out in the middle of downtown seattle i did not have any trouble suspending disbelief on that because what is a city now it's it's half abandoned chaos full of homeless people it's it's not a functional unit of civilization anymore we've not figured out how to make it one again you know we haven't figured out how to take care of the poor and the downtrodden that are that are well i mean we've never done that that's that's never been a thing in human history yeah but we've allowed that we've allowed our own failures as a society to spill out into the streets. And that's always been the case, but never as bad as it is right now. I have to say, I did notice yesterday when I was, uh, um, I, I, I've been driving to work now, so I don't necessarily uh, go to the bus stops anymore. And you work in downtown Seattle. No, I work right downtown. And, and I, yesterday I took a bus home because my wife needed the car uh, in the evening and I wasn't going to go with her. So I took a bus and I was surprised that the homeless camps, like the tents on the sidewalks, they've spilled out from just, instead of it just being Third Avenue, they're everywhere now. (laughs) And so it's getting worse or or they're spreading out. Seattle finds itself, just to go into a little local politics tangent here for a moment, Seattle found itself in a very interesting place with this most recent election. Seattle does off-year elections, so they, they don't do it on the even-numbered years, which means that their their electorate tends to run conservative anyway, because people who vote in off-year elections tend to be older, tend to be more likely to be homeowners, tend to be more likely to be uh, cons- what passes for conservative in Seattle. And uh, the uh, 
the city attorney, Pete Holmes. The city attorney's office in Seattle, by the way, only prosecutes misdemeanors. So people taking their their ire about crime not being adequately uh, handled within Seattle is not only implicitly accepting a police narrative that a non-existent defunding of the Seattle police, which did not happen, is a re- is the reason why crime is rising and not a willful work stoppage on behalf on behalf of those people. Uh, but they're also blaming it on the city attorney's office, even though the city attorney's office does not have any bearing on charging felony cases. So. All of this ire got directed somewhat misguidedly at the city attorney's office. Pete Holmes is, uh, you know, just sort of your bland centrist, and he ended up losing in the primary to uh, to NTK, uh, Nicole Thomas Kennedy, who is a prison industrial complex abolitionist who promised that the very first thing she would do was stop prosecuting misdemeanors entirely. And she was running against a Trumpy Republican who's barely qualified for the job and has never tried a case in a courtroom. And it was the Trumpy Republican who won by double digits. So, well, you're mis- you're you're leaving out the Google NTK had some pretty uh, odious tweets. She had some tweets. bad tweets, yes. Well, so we we were in this situation where the people of Seattle or at least the electorate of Seattle such as it was in this most recent election had to decide between somebody who was going to quote unquote crack down on crime even though her office will not have any bearing on that and somebody who was going to basically embrace the uh, embrace the leftist stream of abolishing the prison industrial complex something that cannot be done by a single city attorney so Here and the are. city uh, the city did decide well let's just let's just have somebody who's going to send the goon squad in to clear these people out because at the and, end of the day it's all about class and we don't want to deal with these poor people when I think about how people think of the city of Seattle and also, you know, other cities as well um, and how those people actually vote, it's, it's kind of like the image that people have of Seattle being a place where it rains all the time. It's just not reality. No, you I know, perpetuate that myth. of any given block in Seattle voted for Donald Trump. Like this city contains multitudes and some of them are Republican. <laughs> so, yeah, no, Buggy, I, I perpetuate the it, it always rings in Seattle because I, yeah, don't, I don't want any, any more people, people here. Move so here. It, it rings every day, nonstop. We've never seen the sun. We cry. We're all dentists and we're all very sad. We're all so. very, very sad. If you if you've seen Twilight, that is us every day. Exactly right. So um, I that that whole tangent, uh, I, I went on that because I wanted to. I wanted to emphasize that I saw my city being presented in a fully realized sort of way here, even though the the local politics of Seattle were not the point of this movie. They were very much a part of this. Movie. It, it felt like at home. Yeah, it felt it felt right. They didn't set it here arbitrarily. It felt like they did their homework, and I appreciated that. Can I give a shout out to uh, Jamie Camille, who played Antonio Rivas uh, in uh, Kimmy? Uh, he was great. <laughs> uh, which one was Antonio Rivas? Uh, Antonio Rivas is the head of Baggy, I guess. Oh, the head, oh, okay, the head, the head sort of of the goon squad. Yes, right? yes. Okay, gotcha. Yes, I do remember him. He was very good. He was very entertaining. More of him. Please. I thought you met the CEO of the Amazon stand-in company, and that was actually played by Derek Delgadio. Do you, do you remember him? No, I mean he was fine. Derek Delgadio is a performance artist and magician. He actually did a special on Hulu last year called Derek Delgadio's In and of Itself, and he's playing himself. It's sort of a hybrid. Magic show, like performance art show, kind of weird bits of theatricality going on. He's also kind of playing some games with the audience. It's a really clever uh, kind of premise, but I've never seen him act before. Um, the guy's primarily an artist. So watching him play this character, I'm, I'm, I was pleasantly surprised that he was able to pull off this character. I just thought that the IPO was uh, shockingly cheap for uh, how, like what the company was. 
Yeah, we sort of have to accept that this is a company that is only doing one small component of what the real-life behemoth Amazon.com is doing. So, you know, them having a smaller valuation makes a certain amount of sense. But if they've already got these devices in every home or in homes across the country, it does feel like they would be worth more than $100 million. Yeah. But I don't know. <laughs> like, I, I, like I said, $100 million, and I was like, really? That, that's it? Uh, and then I quickly moved on because it, what, that wasn't the point. You know, it was just, yeah. you know, it was just a number that felt small to me. So, Daniel, I don't know that we really need to get into spoilers for either of these films because what because I think that what what it comes down to it, both of these films were trying to be paranoid government slash corporatist conspiracy thrillers. And one of them succeeded because it thrilled us and the other one did not succeed because it didn't thrill us and because so many of the of the constituent parts of it just did not work. I don't know that we need to get into the ending because the tension is the thing and the tension is what worked. You know, the last movie we're going to be reviewing here on the podcast is uh, a romantic comedy and we'll probably have some fairly specific things to say about it. But ultimately, the answer will the, the answer to the question will be how much did it make us laugh? So I'm kind of done with reviewing these two films unless you have anything specific we want to talk about with the endings. We can go ahead and get into spoilers for that. But. It's probably not worth it. I'll just say that Honest to God, Blacklight was one of the worst films I've ever seen. <laughs> it's truly terrible um and I, I will say like i i don't mean to uh i don't mean to slag off liam neeson quite so much because he is an actor that i generally enjoy he is just not an action hero i don't know how much he ever was and i don't and he's definitely not that anymore so this was a profoundly misguided film that missed in almost every way that it strove for you know taylor john smith i'll give him a little bit of credit here like mira jones he seemed to be doing the best he could with a, with a fairly weak script you know i i believe in his sadness i also believe in his ability to engage in hand-to-hand combat even if the only reason that he was doing it was so that we could have almost a shot for shot remake of a scene from the born identity so yeah that's about all i got daniel yeah uh i would say highly recommend kimmy uh highly not recommend blacklight I want to talk a little bit more about Zoe Kravitz's performance here, because uh, when I said that she is multi-layered, um, I really liked that this was a depiction of somebody with severe agoraphobia who mm-hmm. contained multitudes. It was somebody who, you know, we see all of the medications that she's taking. We see all of the little rituals around her house. Uh, we see that after her hookup comes over to her house, she has to wash her sheets immediately. And we also see that he knows about her condition so this is clearly not the first time. They've got a little bit of an easy coupley kind of patter between them, even though this is clearly a, a casual sexual relationship they're engaged in. We get a lot of exposition just from how the actors sell their relationship with each other in that scene. And I liked this movie's shorthand. You know, she gets on the phone with her pal in Romania, her, her co-worker Darius, played by Alex Dobrenko, who is a bit of a cartoon character, but I enjoyed him. Uh, he had a line that made me laugh. He brought up that, you know, he's Romanian and the Me Too movement is still 50 years away. That made me laugh. That was funny, yes. We see her calling up to some construction that's happening in the apartment above hers, and it's clearly not the first time this conversation has happened. Like, her life feels lived in, her apartment feels lived in, all of her habits feel lived in, and when she is forced to bust out of those habits and actually exit this place for the first time during lockdown and also for the first time in several years since then, because her her agoraphobia predated COVID, and COVID both made it worse and accommodated it in some strange ways. And we also saw that she was trying to break out of that shell beforehand. Her relationship with Terry across the street was clearly on the verge of getting her out of her shell. And Terry was aware of that because it's evident in the way that he acts toward her. I loved all those layers that were immediately apparent and never had to be spelled out in dialogue because it was all there in, in the actor's performances. Yes, yeah, I, I agree. She was flawed, but she was, she was captivating. I, I wanted to root for her. I wanted to see 
how she navigated this uh, this world. And, and honestly, the most endearing thing that she did in the whole film is after she uses the Purell, she kind of waves her hands dry like a, like a seal. And that, I just thought that was cute. <laughs> well, we've all done that move. Uh, like, I can't, I don't need to wipe it off. I just need it to dry faster. So I can, yeah, 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 because it was just cute. Um, I also, I, I got to hand it to this movie for getting the tech right. Not only is this a real job that she's performing, but the details of how this job is done felt completely plausible to me, and they were well depicted in the film, so I, I appreciate it. I have, a, I have a thing to bring up about that. So Yeah, please. I understood the job that she was doing. It's an important job. It helps the algorithm get smarter, right? I don't understand people who lose their patience on like tech like that. When I talk to the tech in my house, I'm always very polite because there's no reason to yell at it. Like it's not going to know any difference. You know, I, I don't understand treating AI like slaves or yell at them. Like you would like yell at like a, a, a child that was misbehaving. It's just an algorithm. It doesn't, if you aren't communicating effectively, that's on you. I have a perspective on this that comes from my job as well as my own experiences with these things because primarily what I do is business-to-business technical support. And when I'm dealing with people who are trying to tackle software issues, broadly speaking, there are two categories of people. There are people who understand that software is a tool that is capable of performing certain specific functions, and there are various ways in which you can make those functions work for you or work better for you. And if one of them has gone wrong, what is important is not why it happened – Unless that's useful in some way, unless it's something you did wrong and can do differently in the future. Like it's, it's, it's a tool. It's, it is, it's not personal. And when it comes to those AI tools, personally, I think the most useful thing about them is their ability to perform very high quality voice recognition. And I say that as somebody who's got a deep voice and was probably overrepresented in the training data as a white man. So I recognize the privileged position I find myself in by saying that, but I don't expect the machine to be smart. I don't expect the machine to interpret my every whim. I expect it to be a competent voice recognition system that is connected to a search engine. And if I know how to use those things effectively, it may be a useful tool to me. And that's why I sometimes use the voice assistant on my phone. But it's not useful enough to me that I need one to be at my beck and call every minute of every day, which is why I don't have one of these things in my house. Fundamentally, it's not about paranoia over surveillance because that feels naive to me. Like, they're, they're going to get the information out of me one way or the other. My, my wife loves those gadgets, the, those tools. The, she finds them useful. I use them. And for- she knows how to use them well. I've seen or do it i specifically use them for two functions which are what is the weather tomorrow and add x to the shopping list yeah those are both useful functions um as is the vast ecosystem of people and software that enables them because you need all of this information to play nicely with each other on the back end and that's what makes this work and it's people like Angela, like Zoe Kravitz's character here, that are making this work in real life, just as in this film. So not only does it feel like a thoroughly modern and realistic depiction of the city of Seattle that I know, but it feels like a real, like genuinely an honest depiction of the software world that we live in now. So I appreciated that as well. It all felt right. It all felt like her job made sense because I, I, I've heard of these jobs before. I know, like, I know the coding that goes into it in terms of like that it's required. (laughs) The device isn't magical. Like you have to program it. Uh, But like it it all makes sense. It all felt realistic to me. Whereas Blacklight's Project Unity felt like uh, a scrap room for, you know, Metal Gear Solid idea. I guess it felt half-baked. 
Yeah, ultimately, Blacklight was just saying, we do these things because America, but it's real imprecise about what those things are or how those things serve America or what America even means in the context of such a discussion. And and for a movie where there's probably 20 solid minutes of dialogue in which people are spelling out their ideologies, that is unacceptable. <laughs> also, the whole, uh, I'm just going to spoil it because we're not really doing a proper spoiler section. But the electrocution at the end, it was done better in um, Denzel's movie. In The Equalizer. The Equalizer, yeah. yes. Okay, fair enough. There is some electricity used. I'm not sure I'd call that a spoiler. It's like kind of like saying that guns are fired in this movie. There are multiple are guns fired. The only time that Liam Neeson made me laugh was when he drew his gun on Pearl and she dropped the coffee. And I was like, well, now <laughs> she has to go get more coffee. Good job, asshole. <laughs> Well, that is Blacklight and Kimmy. Kimmy is playing on HBO Max uh, right now. You can watch it anytime uh, at home. And uh, Blacklight is in theaters only. And I recommend you forget about this one as quickly as the people who have seen it will. And now on to our review of I Want You Back. Hello? Is everything okay? You have mascara all over your whole face. You actually have... Like a piece of toilet paper or oh, something. Oh, do I really? Other side. There. Yeah. Just got dumped. I want to break up with you. What? Oh, me too. I'm breaking up with you. <coughs> oh my god. What about this? Whatever we're feeling, like we just can't take it anymore. Let's call each other. We're each other's sadness sisters. Well, sadness sisters sounds like you're Diane Keaton, and I'm Meryl Streep, and we're in a Broadway play, but I like it, yeah. That's a great cast. You should cast plays. That was from the trailer of I Want You Back, the new film on Prime Video directed by Jason Orley, based on a screenplay by Isaac Aptiker and Elizabeth Berger, starring Charlie Day, Jenny Slate, Gina Rodriguez, Manny Jacinto, Scott Eastwood, and Clark Bacow. This film is a romantic comedy that begins with the characters Peter and Emma, played by Charlie Day and Jenny Slate, being dumped by their respective significant others, played by Anne, uh, that is Peter's ex, uh, played by Gina Rodriguez, and uh, Noah, played by Scott Eastwood, who was dating Emma, and is now dating Ginny, played by Clark Bacow, and is now dating Manny Jacinto, uh, who is playing Logan. Uh, Manny Jacinto we primarily know from The Good Place, uh, and uh, yeah, these are all actors that we have seen in other things we've got charlie day who was in i believe it's always sunny in philadelphia and various Mm -hmm. other comedy roles from there uh jenny slate who has been in comedy world for as long as i can remember um most uh, notably in a a number of fairly raunchy comedies uh as well as uh crawl show on television We've also got Gina Rodriguez, who we know previously from Kajillionaire, uh, among other things. And then we've got Scott Eastwood, who we've seen before. I will say, Daniel, this is the first time Scott Eastwood has ever made me smile. So I'll, uh, hmm. I'll, give, you, I'll give you that. He had a little bit of charisma going on Look in this that. that I've not seen in previous things. So, uh, yeah. And Manny Jacinto as, uh, as, as Logan, I, I will say he is very distinct from Jason Mendoza on The Good Boys. <laughs> he's, doing a, he's doing a completely different accent and vibe and, uh, yeah, just a very, uh, a very seasoned comedic actor at this Not point. Not a single Jacksonville reference. Indeed, indeed. Uh, so, Daniel, the Jacksonville Jaguars notwithstanding, uh, this film essentially is a romantic comedy that is rooted in uh, in breakups and in a friendship between two adults. It's got a little bit of When Harry Met Sally kind of vibes to it. Uh, they're in relationships with other people, or they're pursuing relationships with other people for the majority of this film. The will-they-won't-they they of it all, 
uh, is tied up in them bonding as they are explicitly not trying to make a relationship with each other work at all. So pretty simple as all rom-com premises are, but Dan- but ultimately what matters is how much did it make you laugh and how much did it make you feel uh, you know, warm and fuzzy inside your heart? So I will put it to you. Ooh, how well did this film work for you? Well, I did like this film. Uh, I laughed exactly six times. Fucking uh, hell, Daniel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, you six, are, it was six good laughs. You are, I have to say, and I said this right before we started recording, a joyless ass when it comes to comedies. I don't think you can get out of your head enough when it comes to comedies because the structure of them stands out so much to you. And the jokes, I will grant, do not feel naturalistic as they're happening. People do not laugh like this. I want to see the comedy that made you, that provokes those deep belly laughs for like 90 minutes straight. Does that comedy exist for you? I don't know. I don't think I've ever laughed that much. It may just not be in your bones, dude. Like I, I'm a very funny person. I'm I'm you very are a very comedian. funny person. You make me laugh all the time. You laugh at me all the time. You laugh while making fun. But when of me other all people do jokes, I tend to not laugh. I tend to appreciate it, but I don't necessarily laugh. Okay, did you appreciate this film? I like this film. I I definitely uh, I I'm a big Jenny Slate fan. I think she's fantastic. And uh, I'm not a It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia fan because they're just too mean to each other. Right. So it, it, it just doesn't connect with – I don't just connect with it very well. Plus Philadelphia, eh. But, you know, Charlie Day's, you know, very entertaining guy. I, I like his uh, – he, he has an easy charisma to him and he, I think he's funny. Uh, so I think him playing the league as uh, – co-league as uh, Peter was good. And I've never – have. what have we seen Scott Eastwood in? He seemed new to me. You know, other than the shadow of Clint Eastwood's nepotism, I wouldn't say too much. But the things that we have seen him in, he's not particularly memorable in. I want to say he was in one of the Suicide Squads. He was in Wrath of Man. He was in Pacific Rim Uprising. He was in Fast and the Furious 8, The Fate of the Furious. I thought he was fine. Yeah, fine is about right for him. He's fine. <laughs> in this film, I actually rather liked him. I thought he held his own as a member of this comedic ensemble. I wasn't, I was not expecting much for the, from this guy. So he benefited from low expectations, but uh, I enjoyed him. I, I think I liked how the story didn't exactly go, you know, in, in, a, in a direction that was predictable. Like I, I was, I, I knew they were, you know, probably end up together, but I wasn't sure. And, and so I like, I liked the journey we went on. I thought it was nice. Yeah, it's messy. They are messy people. And the plot that they come up with to try and get their exes back is ridiculous, (laughs) but it falls within the realm of this is sort of ordinary dysfunctional behavior in the wake of an of a of being dumped. Like these people are kind of fucked up right now, but you get the feeling that they're going to be fine eventually. They're not like committing crimes here, except for the few minor crimes they commit. What, what, what I enjoyed um, was that uh, Emma wasn't a stupid person. She just hadn't figured out her life. Because it could have been very easy for her just to be kind of dumb, I guess, <laughs> or simple. But she didn't feel simple. She just felt like, you know, she was in a rut. Yeah, and Peter is a VP of an old folks home, you know, big evil corporation. And, uh, you know, he's kind of a little, little bit of a tie-in uh, to I Care A Lot there. He's probably part, one of the co-conspirators. Yeah, for there. sure. <laughs> but, I thought uh, of that movie, too. Yeah, they, there's one of the uh, I'm curious if one of the six times you laughed was during the board meeting at the beginning where they talked about either removing ice from the old people's drinks or replacing the chicken that they eat with a product called Hint of Chicken. Yes, I laughed at Hint of Chicken. I thought that was funny. Which contains a substance that is protein adjacent. I, I like that yes. as well. <laughs> they're both kind of aimless and they're both kind of fucked up and they both are in a, in a world that they don't really see their place 
as making all that much sense in. And obviously we millennials can find that relatable, even if only Jenny Slate is technically a millennial. Charlie Day is fucking 46. That dude is Gen Ugh, X as hell. So Gen <laughs> X. But uh, he's, he's young looking. I'll give him that. I think this movie largely worked for me. The comedy is pretty solid, and I liked just how messy all of these people were. They make they make some pretty big mistakes over the course of this film, but ultimately you can understand why all of these people liked each other. You can understand why all of these people at some point found each other appealing. You know, too many romantic comedies turn the X of the official couple or the rival love interest the official couple into these one-dimensional monsters and that's not what any of them were they felt like they had substance even if the substance of them was not necessarily the point you know the point was to watch peter and emma start to bond so that we can we can long for them to be together and even that feels messy as the film goes on so yeah by and large i would say it worked it reminded me a little bit of sleeping with other people a film uh, that i liked i think better than this film but uh it had a very similar vibe to it of these are people that I could see falling in love, even if that's not necessarily the track that they think they're on right now. You know, it's not so much will they, won't they? It's so much, oh, okay, these two make sense. I agree, and I, I did appreciate that the exes weren't villainous or car- cartoony or or silly. Like they, they, they felt like normal people. Or arbitrarily paired up with each other. You know, pair the spares at the end. Right, right. Be. Yeah, it... it I think it worked for me. I I enjoyed the film. I didn't laugh a lot, but I definitely was entertained. Yeah, I mean, a lot of these sort of madcap rom-commy elements of, oh, like, uh uh-oh, we're about to get caught here, or, oh, we're doing something a little bit zany here to try and make this work. Those scenes largely worked, you know, the the sort of tension that's in place there that's fairly low stakes. Um, You know, it it plays like a much more warm and relaxing version of the uh, the thriller movie. It's it's the same feeling as a thriller. It's just what's at stake is your heart. Aww. There were a few subplots in here that I really enjoyed, the little layers to it. You know, as Kevin Smith in Jersey Girl can tell you, uh, any movie that mixes in uh, like, a, like a diegetic segment of a stage musical into itself, uh, like Kevin Smith did in that film with uh, Sweeney Todd, mm. uh, this film mixes in an entire performance of Suddenly Seymour uh, as a duet with a fairly talented 12-year-old. Quite solid and so strange and such a bizarre moment, and the movie just fucking goes for it. Forgetting Sarah Marshall... The Jason Siegel character's Dracula puppet musical throwing in there. Obviously, that's an original one, but anytime a movie wants to throw in a random song and dance number as a way of showing me who these people are, I'm always there for that. I have something to admit to you. I've never seen Little Shop of Horrors. Oh, you should. I mean, there have been several different versions of this. I've seen it on stage a couple of times, and I've, and of course, seen the uh, version from the 1980s by Frank Oz. Uh, featured a very demented Steve Martin as the sadistic dentist, uh, and uh, Rick Moranis as uh, Seymour, the uh, main character. The rest of the cast eludes me at this moment, but you know, it's about a uh, it's about an evil alien plant that is uh, that has come from far, far away, and the uh, uh, the Seymour character starts feeding it blood and eventually bodies. It's a real dark fucking. I, I think so. As a kid, it was on TV one time and i watched like one scene that's all i remember about it is that i watched one of the songs feed me that's the sort of iconic line there it's the uh, the audrey uh, plant telling you to uh feed it blood and feed it your friends yeah that's a solid movie but uh then pete davidson shows up as uh, as a fellow named jace who he looks like a jace mm-hmm. doesn't he there's a whole druggy segment involving some people that they should not be doing drugs with. Let's just say that the hot tub stunt work, like they're, they're, again, more of just the madcap silliness there. I'm gonna tell you all the laughs. I'll just tell you a couple. Pete Davidson showing up earned laugh number two. <laughs> all right. 
<laughs> yeah, Pete Davidson apparently had some prior involvement with the director of this film. The director actually uh, uh, directed a his first film a few years ago. I, I had its name earlier, but uh, it starred Pete Davidson in sort of the lead role in that film. That was Jason Orley's first film. And uh, Pete Davidson's stand-up special, uh, subsequently, Jason Orley also directed that. So this is only Orley's second feature, if you don't count the stand-up special in the middle. But it appears that Pete Davidson has been involved with him for a while here. Um, I don't know that he's a producer or anything on this. He might just be a frequent collaborator, but there you go. He's such an interesting comedian because he's not that funny, but he's just so weird looking, I guess, that he makes it work. The fact that uh, Pete Davidson kind of reminds me of Norm MacDonald in that he, uh, you know, rest in peace, but in that he's very bizarre and doesn't seem to care all that much if you like him. And that can work really well or really poorly as a comedic performance. But Pete Davidson has made me laugh more times than he should based on the substance of what he says. So his entire vibe, I find very funny. Yeah. Like there's something you just can't figure out about him. It's a, it's appealing and weirdly intense. Yeah. A few quick details that I wanted to call out here. Um, so, uh, Anne, Gina Rodriguez's character, we see her millennial childhood bedroom, which has the following posters on the wall. Boys to men, salt and pepper, 98 Degrees, and Free Willy 2, The Adventure Home. <laughs> oh, 98 Degrees. That was at the height of the boy band wave. Oh, yes, our boy Nick Lachey. They were not good. BSB and NSYNC, I will still occasionally go back and listen to some of those songs. BSB has grown on me over the years. They're, they're very good. 98 Degrees has uh, faded into obscurity for me, and I'm happy with that, so. But uh, I also liked that there's a there's a moment where Peter gives Emma a self-help book in a nice way is how I wrote it down in my notes here. And giving someone a self-help book is something that, you know, it can seem really insulting in the moment. It's a roll of the dice for sure. You really have to have a good read on someone. And the banter that the two of them engage in as he's handing this book over, uh, they're sort of going back and forth. And one of the lines that Emma says, almost in an undertone, as she's accepting this book from him is, all books are for nerds. And he doesn't remark upon it in any way, but I was I actually re- rewound it a moment just to make sure that I heard that correctly. And it was just so, so well delivered. There were lots of just little muttered lines like that. And, you know, Jenny Slate is brilliant. And you know, anytime they were throwing in a little bit of light improv or or what, like, I don't know how much of that was in the script or not. This was based on a script by Isaac Aptiker and Elizabeth Berger, who uh, we know we know right now is the creators of How I Met Your Father, Daniel. Did you know that? Oh, God. I was a little said about that, uh, the better. But it seemed like a lot of the banter in this film did incorporate a little bit of patter, a little bit of improvised uh, dialogue there. I don't know if that's true or not, but if nothing else, that just means the comedic chemistry between these two characters worked quite as well as the romantic chemistry between them is supposed to, so... I watched this uh, the film with my wife, who liked it quite a bit as well. And uh, she was like, who is the actress, uh, Emma? And I was <laughs> I said, like, it's based off her name. <laughs> and she's like, oh, Kroll Show, okay. Oh, that's Liz. <laughs> Jenny Slate is brilliant. Yeah, Jenny Slate. She's, she's so good. Uh, she uh, she wrote and uh, produced a series of short films based on, uh, called Marcel the Shell with Shoes On, which is just adorable. Uh, she's also been on, uh, she's been on Bob's Burgers. She was on Parks and Recreation. Uh, <laughs> great role on Parks and Recreation recreation as the sister of ben schwartz's character on that show they're both fantastic and ridiculous she was in zootopia she also uh was in a film called obvious child uh where she where she was uh, kind of the lead in that film and it's a it was a sort of a festival indie darling 
dramedy with comedic elements, I would say. Uh, and, and it was quite solid. And she does stand up in that in that film as well. And the stand up is very funny as well. So, um, yeah, Jenny Slate, definitely a darling of the comedy community. Um, and, yeah, she worked as a romantic lead here. She got those romantic moments just mm-hmm. right. You know, I agree. The, uh, the moments of the moments of, of feeling she sold in her acting. And that's not always something that people can transition from. Well, if they're primarily known for, for comedy, like bringing in that seriousness, bringing in that earnestness, making us weep for the state of your heart is something that has to happen in a romantic comedy. And she pulled it off. And Charlie day, same deal. He's a goofy fucking guy. And that's mostly what I've seen him as in previous uh, comedy roles, but he works here. Um, and he works as a romantic lead here. I like Logan as well. I, I, I think, uh, <laughs> He's had a lot of threesomes. <laughs> he's had a lot of threesomes. Uh, he, man, he's fantastic. He stole the show, I think, in uh, The Good Place. I didn't recognize him for a moment because I didn't realize he was that ripped. He had the long hair and, and the cum gutters, as they would say on uh, Rick and Morty. He's, he's absolutely ripped in his I, films. I, so it that. took a second. I was like, that is that really him? Uh yeah, Manny Jacinto, I think, was the was the way in which this film reminded me the most of Forgetting Sarah Marshall because he's doing the Russell. Oh Brown yeah, definitely. Her. Like he's he's the sexy other man who is there to who's there to shake up the sexual convictions of all of our main characters and make them consider just how far into debauchery they want to go. And they will they will answer that question for themselves before this film is over. The other laugh I'll give you is when it is revealed that Emma was not in a little shop of horrors performance as a uh, high schooler or, or middle schooler and uh, Logan is so offended by that he storms out and he gets this little flourish at the end as he shoves open the door because he's so offended and that made me laugh you need to respect the material I mean she she by giving that powerful performance that turned out to be completely improvised and, and sight read from the sheet music which honestly indicates some musical talent but he was horrified. Like, how dare you? I have to rethink yep, everything. That was an insult everything I know to theater. about middle school musical theater. Yeah, I, I think this is overall quite solid. I enjoyed it. I would recommend it. I'm not big on like I like comedies, but uh, most comedies don't really engage me that well. Or I'll, I'll just think it's mildly entertaining, and or I like one performance and that's it. But no, this was solid. I think it was a good ensemble. Yeah, it's the rare romantic comedy that will really stick in my craw. I don't know that this will be one of those. I've mentioned a few, Forgetting Sarah Marshall and Sleeping with Other People among them. I think this is a film that I will remember fondly if I remember it at all. But it, it's also one that I I don't have any qualms about recommending to people. It's a genre that has not seen a lot of uh, a lot of good entries in the last few years. Romantic comedies are treated like this whole subgenre of Christmas film, and there's sort of an implicit understanding that they're going to be garbage and that people are going to watch them ironically while while drinking wine at Christmas. And I don't like that. I don't like slagging off an entire genre like that. I think it's uh, it, it treats the uh, mechanics of human relationships as overly. How dare you precious. insult Christmas movies? Christmas magical yeah. realism is like my favorite genre. <laughs> You know, the Hallmark Channel has built a solid business model on cranking this shit out, and Netflix is very much trying to eat yeah, the lunch. Yeah, and it's a wonderful insight when conservatives say, I, we want to get back to how, how America was. What they're referencing is those Hallmark Christmas movies that never was real life. So if you want an insight... There's a small town with a bakery on Main Street yes. shot on the back lot at Universal. <laughs> if you want to understand conservative ideology... That's what you gotta watch. It's the Hallmark movies, Christmas time. You gotta talk to eight old white rich land barons in a diner outside of Poughkeepsie, and you have to watch the Hallmark Channel. <laughs> exactly. 
Well, Daniel, that's about all I got for this film. I would say solid recommendation if you're in the mood. Again, if you like the genre, this is on the above average uh, end of that. So, um, Daniel, any final thoughts about the film? No, I think you summed it up. It was solid. I enjoyed it and I recommend it. Well, if you have any feedback on our discussion of Blacklight or Kimmy or I Want You Back, feel free to email us at filmwonknet at gmail.com. Thank you for tuning in to filmwonk.net and have a good night. Yeah.